Well, good morning again. Good morning. And welcome to Calvary Chapel. You can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts in chapter 20 and in verse 13. And as you're turning there and as we prepare our hearts this morning to hear from God, for we're not just here to study God's Word, we're here to hear from God. As we prepare our hearts to hear from God, I want to challenge you to think hard about why Paul did what Paul did. What was it about Paul and his ministry team, for there were many, we saw this last week, men and women who served God with all their hearts, minds, souls, and strength, and lives, giving their lives for the cause of Christ. What was it about these individuals that motivated them? What was their passion? Was it that they loved to plant churches? Was it that they enjoyed being persecuted? Did they, did they have some manifesto, some agenda? What was it that caused them to do what they did and live the way they lived? You know, a number of years ago when we had the privilege of a guest speaker named Gail Irwin, he handed out these little stickers. I believe we still have them next door in the hallway in the bulletin display outside the office. And these little stickers, they just said others. And I've seen them on the back of many of your vehicles as I pull into the parking lot. Sometimes I'll be coming up the street and I'll see uh, someone, oh, they must be here early. They're certainly from our fellowship. You'll see this others. Sometimes I see them on bags. You guys have, have, have if you haven't heard of him, we do have them. Uh, but the, the sticker kind of said, you know, I'm living my life for someone else, not just for myself. It can be your family, it can be your friends, it can be your loved ones, your children, for other members of the body of Christ. But when we take that sticker and we say others, I think we also answer the question this morning as to what motivated Paul and his ministry team to serve. It wasn't about them, it was about others. Lord Heavenly Father, We open your word with reverence today, understanding that you speak to us through the power of your spirit as we open our hearts to you. As we look into your word this morning, we we ask that in all things you would be glorified. We ask that you would apply to our hearts the truth that you have for us today, and that you would help us and empower us to live our lives for your glory, for we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, when we think about the two great commandments, we think about loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then, of course, the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Summed up in that one word, others. As we come to the end of the account of Paul's third missionary journey, it's clear that his heart for people is what drove him. His passion for others, his concern for Jews and Gentiles, Romans and Greeks, that they would come to know Christ and enter into eternity with Jesus forever. This is what motivated the man. And as he begins to make his travel back to Jerusalem and the area of the Middle East, Before he leaves, he wants to stop in and check in with a few of those others that he had loved and certainly loved and ministered to for many years. Let's read just the first section here. 
We pick it up in verses 13, and we'll just read through maybe verse 16 there. In verse 13 we read, or Luke writes, We went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. And when he met us at Assos, we took him aboard and went on to Mytilene. Next day, we set sail from there and arrived off Chios. And the day after that, we crossed over to Samos. And on the following day, arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. At first glance, you might say, well, you know, Paul isn't interested in stopping in Ephesus where he had pastored for three years because he really doesn't want to talk to anybody. Or he's on a mission. He's much too busy to be distracted right now by people things. And we can be like that. We can get like that. We can be so focused on what we're doing for God that we forget the people of God. You would be wrong to think that because that's not Paul's heart at all. Paul is in a hurry to get to Jerusalem because that is where the Spirit is compelling him to go, as we'll see. But he makes one particular detour, and we'll see this in just a minute, to spend time with others. He set the whole thing up. Let's just look a little bit here. We learned that Paul and his team, they sail from Troas to Miletus. That's, the, that's what we've just read. Now, Paul's team, which was considerable, a number of people, sailed on ahead to Assos, and they waited for Paul. Now, you might be saying, well, why? How is Paul going to catch up with these guys who were sailing by ship? I thought the same thing. But Assos was a port city on the coast of Mysia in northwest Asia Minor, what we call nor, uh, modern-day Turkey. But Paul had arranged to spend some time alone. Sometimes when we're around a large group of people, it gets a little hairy. We need a little time to ourselves to pray. Jesus did this all the time. I suggest you do likewise. In fact, I would go so far as to say that there's an equation. Time spent with God equals effective time of ministry with others. I'm going to repeat that. Time spent with God equals effective time of ministry with others. So what I'm saying is, if you're spending more time ministering to others than communing with God, you're out of balance. That means you're going to get tired. You're going to get short with people. You're going to find yourself getting fed up and unable to be patient with others. That symptom belies the truth of a cause, and the cause is you're not spending enough time with God. So Paul knows what he's going into. Specifically, this meeting that he's arranged to have with the Ephesian elders on a particular day in a particular place. But first, he needs a little time alone. And it's interesting the way he worked it out. Paul had arranged to spend some time alone as he walked directly to Troas from Assos. You see, the trip was 20 miles on foot but it was 30 miles by sea. They had to sail around the cape called the Cape Lectum, and they had to do this against the wind. It was going to take them longer to sail there than to walk. Paul knew this. He was an experienced traveler. So he said, this will be perfect. 
This will give me a little extra time just to be alone by myself with the Lord. Paul connected, or reconnected, with his ministry team at Assos, and then they set sail together. So, so realize now, going into this, he has spent time alone. He's prepared for what will come in the days ahead. And then they sailed along the coast of Proconsular Asia, which is western Turkey, till they were rely, or excuse me, till they arrived at Miletus. We talked about a few places along the way, Mytilene, Chios, Samos, but these were just stops on the way to some better or more important destination. Paul was determined, though, to travel to Jerusalem, and he hoped to arrive there before the day of Pentecost. So the clock is ticking. Remember, I remind you of this from last week, he had originally planned to sail directly to Syria and on to Jerusalem in time for the Passover. But because of threats against his life, he had to change his travel plans. And so now he sails past Ephesus. You would think, wouldn't he stop in Ephesus? No, he sailed past Ephesus to avoid spending too much time in proconsular Asia. If he had gone back to Ephesus, he would have been late in arriving in Jerusalem, and he knew that. In fact, he had already spent nearly four of the seven weeks between these two feasts traveling in Asia. So he is in a hurry, and yet he's able to, through prayer and communion with God, prioritize what's most important. You see, efficiency is very important to me as well. You've only got so much time. Have you noticed that? Don't you love when people say, oh, I don't have the time, as if somehow they have less than you do. We all have the same amount of time. We don't all have the same amount of money, but we budget our money, we budget our resources. You have to budget your time. Time management is an important skill. It's used in the business world. It's used in raising families. It's also used in ministry. So you have to make choices. And it's not always easy to know what is the best use of my time. Does that begin to explain why he spent a little time alone with the Lord? See, you and I, we have to ask God, what do you want me to do with my time? I could do any one of a hundred things in a given week. And I need to be prayerful and careful to do the things that God has called me to do. Not the things I want to do. Pastor Kurt and I were having a conversation a couple of years ago now. We were talking about the things we like to do. He has interests, I have interests. And if we gave ourselves over to those interests, there probably wouldn't be as much time for ministry. Right, Kurt? And I remember him saying something that really resonated with me. And I mentioned, probably mentioned this before. We were talking about golf. And I don't golf, but I think he does. And uh, he said, you know, if I was going to do what I wanted to do, I'd play golf all the time. That is true. If we were going to do what we wanted to do, we would do things differently. I know some people that do whatever they want to do. They're not the most effective ministers of the gospel. You and I, we have to learn there are things that we like to do that God has not called us to do, or at least not to the degree that we want to do them. One of the things I can tell you right up front, I can answer this. I can't say this is a prophecy from the Lord, but it is. He probably wants you to watch less TV. I'm just going to say it. Probably wants you to read more of his word. I don't know what God has for you individually, but I know we waste a lot of time. 
And we can be selfish with our time. So what we have to do, we have to go to prayer. We have to ask God, God, what are the, the, the 12 things you want me to do this week? He will show you. I make decisions all the time not to do things I'd like to do and to do things I need to do simply because I've prayed. And so Paul has set this whole thing up. And we'd be wrong if we missed that. That time alone was vital to making these decisions properly. Anyway, it would have been extremely difficult for him to briefly visit a place like Ephesus, a church where so many knew Paul. Everyone would have wanted to have spent time with him there. And he wouldn't have been able to do what God had called him to do. And yet, he needed to visit with the leaders of the church of Ephesus. So he set this thing up. He sailed past Ephesus, and he met with the elders in this place that we've already talked about, Miletus. Let's look on here. I think we're now in uh, verse 17. It says, From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. And when they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears. Although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. That is the heart of Paul. That is the heart of a man who has surrendered his heart to God. Now here, he addresses the elders of the church of Ephesus in a separate location away from the rest of the church because what he said to them and is about to say to them is so vitally important that he only has so much time. This is the most efficient use of that time. He's prayed it through. This is what he wants to do. He asks them to join him because he wants to share his heart. I don't know how many elders there were. Enough. He ministered in that city where these elders were As I've said already, for three years, they knew Paul. Ephesus, as we've said before, was a maritime city in Asia Minor. It's in that that area of western Turkey. He had been there. He reminded them of how he had lived and ministered among them in this church in Ephesus. They had planted other churches as well during that time. He had served the Lord, and how how did he serve the Lord? He had served the Lord, and he tells us in verses 18 through 19, He served the Lord by serving. That's your cue. See, now, if I were in a Pentecostal church, this would have worked. (laughs) He served the Lord by serving. See, I gave you the answer up front and everything. One more time. He served the Lord by serving. There you go. He tells us up front, tells them, this is how I served the Lord, by serving you. And he did so, and it's interesting, he did it with great humility. Now, it takes a humble man to say, I did it with great humility, doesn't it? Seriously, I mean, he told them, I didn't do this to get attention. I didn't do this for me. I did this for you. See, a loving parent who humbly serves their children could say, I made sacrifices for you, and not in a way that brings guilt either. 
I made my sacrifices for you because you are most important to me. And he did it with tears. You know what that tells me? Paul was an emotional dude. He was the kind of person that, that shared his heart. If you're going to share tears, there's no way you're not transparent. Okay, can I say that? If you're going to share tears, you are absolutely transparent with others. There are two things I want to say to every minister here this morning and every Christian who ministers the gospel. You have to serve others, you have to do it humbly, and you have to do it with feeling and emotion and transparency. Anything less simply is not ministry. Paul knew this. He was able to say it. He's not bragging. It isn't bragging if you did it. He did it. He had suffered through many hardships as well, and he mentioned that there, and trials at the hands of the Jews. He was hated by many, many people, and yet loved by many people as well. And he had boldly preached the word of God to them. And he says publicly and house to house. Now, why do I like this? Because there are some pastors that are way too important to go house to house or face to face. You can barely find them after the service is over. They're in their ivory tower, I suppose. Oh, I know I'm critical, but I'm getting older. It's okay. I couldn't be this critical when I was a pastor in my 20s, but now I'm in my 50s, so I can call it like it is. I've met pastors that will not only give you the time of day, will spend hours with you. You almost feel a little guilty. Oh, pastor, I'm sorry. I'm taking up too much of your time. And I've had pastors look at me and say, no, this is the most important thing I do. I've learned from those pastors. Those are the men that I aspire to be like. Those are the people that I admire. But I've also met those that may not even make eye contact with you. You'll go to hear them speak and you just want to thank them and you can't even find them after the message. Who knows where they are? Maybe they're already on their Learjet on the way to whatever the next destination is. You can see it. You know the difference between a phony and the real thing, don't you? Don't make excuses for me or any other pastor if we don't if we don't determine in our hearts to be like Paul or, or Jesus. Publicly, yes. Part of our job is to be public ministers of the gospel. But house to house means that we know the people we're ministering to. We've been to their homes. They've been to ours. We've been out for a burger together. We've had coffee together. We, we know each other. Maybe we're not as close with some as others, But everyone feels comfortable to come near us and say, Pastor, brother, sister, can I talk to you? Oh, don't bother the pastor. He's too busy. Doing what exactly? If not, ministering publicly and house to house in humility with great tears. This is the ministry. Amen? Paul is that wonderful example. And he's not telling them this To brag, he's reminding them so that they can do likewise, as I am reminding you. He had faithfully preached the gospel of Jesus Christ to everyone, both Jews and Gentiles. That includes everyone. Greeks, Romans, anyone that would listen, really. Galatians, anyone. And he breaks it down for us. There are two things, and he mentions it there in verse 21. He says, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that, notice the two things, They must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. If you're ever wondering what preaching the gospel means, in its simplest form, it's this. 
It's preaching repentance towards God. By the way, not a popular message today. Telling people it's time to change. Your heart needs to be given to God and you need to start to live in a way that honors God if you're not already. That's repentance. The world doesn't like anyone to tell them things need to change, but they do. The, the thing you should hear more often than anything else as you come to church is repentance. It's not a bad word. It means the thing you're doing, change. Oh, pastor, how do I change? God has given us his Holy Spirit and empowered us to change. What a shame it would be if every week, week after week, you heard this message and you were empowered by the Spirit of God for change and you didn't. But you continued to live your life in a way contrary to God's will. That's true for the seeker. That's true for the unsaved. It's also true for the saved, the Christian, the disciple, the minister, the pastor. And then there's this, faith in our Lord Jesus. You know, my job really is kind of easy because essentially that's what I do every Sunday and every Wednesday. In every conversation I have that is ministry-oriented, I'm encouraging repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. Now, the message is easy. Doing it is another thing entirely. Faith in our Lord Jesus, trusting God through difficult times, being willing to change, being willing to give your life and live your life for him. That is why we're here. Well, Paul goes on in verses 22 through 24 to say this. He says, and now, and he explains, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem. You see, this wasn't Paul's idea of a vacation. Compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, knowing what will happen to me, excuse me, not knowing what will happen to me there, I only know, this is what he did know, that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. So he didn't know exactly what was going to happen, but he had a general idea of what was going to happen. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task, the Lord Jesus has given me the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace which is exactly what we've talked about. So, it's the Holy Spirit that has called him to go to Jerusalem. He wasn't rudely staying away from people. He he fit into his schedule as much people as he could, and yet he couldn't be diverted from where God was calling him to go. And where God was calling him to go, it wasn't going to be easy. He didn't know exactly what would happen. He knew that it wasn't going to always go well. Sound like life to anybody? Remember when you used to leave your house every day not knowing what could happen to you? It's still the same, isn't it, right? I mean, we, somewhere along the line, we were told that we could somehow predict everything that was going to happen and prevent anything from happening to our lives, but that really hasn't changed. As far as I'm concerned, the emperor's new clothes don't exist. The idea that we could somehow serve Christ and somehow be perfectly safe at the same time is ridiculous. Paul knew that. He understood that. And he looked at his life through those lenses. Now, while he was uncertain as to exactly what would happen while he was in Jerusalem, he had been warned by the Spirit. Driven by the Spirit, but warned by the Spirit that he would be imprisoned and experience hardships. 
Again, not a prophecy, although it might be. You are going to experience hardship in this life. Tragedy and difficulty. Why? Because it's kind of how you spell life. And anyone that would tell you that you have any other option is lying to you. I wish it weren't so. But if this were heaven, they wouldn't call it earth. So, how did this happen? Well, the Spirit must have spoken to him, I suspect, through prophets in the cities that he visited. But the Spirit was compelling him to go. He's on the move. But the Spirit is also preparing him for the challenges. See, I think we forget when God tells us something's going to happen, it's not so we can run away. It's so that we can run toward his will with confidence in God's ability to protect us and get us through. Amen? See, we need to change the way we think about the challenges in this life. It's not about playing it safe. I I often, and I I think about baseball right now only because, hey, listen, I miss it. I haven't watched it for years. But I often think about that runner at first who's trying to get to second, trying to steal that base. You know, sometimes you watch them, and depending on how quick they are, they'll lead off that base while the pitcher has the ball. They'll lead, and you think, oh, no, he's too far away. He's definitely going. Definitely going. You watch that and you realize, hey, listen, you know what? That person is trying to get an extra base. And they're willing to jeopardize the one they have to get to the second. Very few Christians today are willing to jeopardize their comfort to accomplish something for the kingdom of God. I want you to have that picture of that base runner. His whole purpose and risk is in moving forward. That is how we serve the Lord. Oh, pastor, if you say that, they might throw you in jail. Sorry, I'm trying to steal second. I'm trying to advance the kingdom. I'm not satisfied to play it safe on first. I'm trying to make my way all the way to home. And when I get to home, I don't want to resent or feel in any way that I have wasted my time on this planet. So, Just a picture for you to think about as we reach, as we strive to do the things that God has called us to do. That's how Paul is approaching Jerusalem. And the fact that he was fully prepared to suffer. By the way, if you you lead off first, you better be prepared to be thrown out at second. It might happen, but you've got to try. He fully prepared to suffer. Fully was prepared. And he even was willing to die in order to fulfill the Lord's will for his life. Now, I know many of you will say that. And in a moment of strength and confidence, we may believe that. But to do that is something entirely different than just saying it. And I doubt that any of us, at least most of us probably, have not been tested to that degree. But you will be. Eventually, at some point in our lives, in this crazy world, we're going to have to say, what's more important, serving Christ or being comfortable? Doing what's right or doing what's wrong? What, what is my choice going to be? It would be best to make it now. And say, Lord, I like what he said. i got to read it again. I consider my life worth nothing to me. Now, it's valuable to God, but it's worth nothing to me. That is, what I do, how I live, the things that are important to me, golfing, whatever it else, is, else it is we do or enjoy doing, 
However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race. In this case, Paul uses another sporting analogy, a little different than baseball. Baseball hadn't been invented yet. But the race, the idea of leaning forward to finish the race and completing the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. That was Paul. Prepare to suffer. Only wanted to finish the race that the Lord had given him to run. Only wanted to complete the task that the Lord had given him to do. And we, like Paul, need to consider our lives, and as we do, we shouldn't consider them more valuable than testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Amen? I know those are challenging words, but they're still true. So, He's speaking to these elders and he charges them to faithfully lead the church of God in Ephesus. Look at verses 25 through, we'll read all the way down to 32. I love this charge. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Here's the encouragement. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember, that for three years I never stopped warning each of you, night and day, with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified, that is, set apart in Christ. Challenging words. I want to sort of recap very briefly what he said to them. It's not rocket science. He lived it. By living it, he only needed to remind them of it. It's not as if three years went by and he says, okay, finally now, I'm going to teach you the secret of ministering the gospel of Jesus Christ by the Spirit. It's not as if they were hanging on every word, waiting for some new message. No, this was a reminder of what he had told them for three years. He revealed to them, first of all, that this was it. They would never see him again. And he declared himself innocent of allowing anyone to die without hearing the gospel. Wow. Wow. I could just close the book now. That challenge alone humbles me, convicts me, doesn't condemn me, but it's pretty close. Because I feel at times that I am also guilty of allowing those I care about to go on without hearing the truth. So what I do is I look for opportunities with those that I know need to hear it, or maybe they've heard it and they need to hear it again. And I ask God and I pray and I say, Lord, would you open up a door for me to Share some of the truth of your word with an individual today. And I'm glad to say God does answer the prayer that I pray. Sometimes I wish it was answered in a greater way, but without fail, God has always opened up the door, even a crack, and I am able to say something. If it's a quote from God's word, or just something that that person needs to hear from God's heart, I'm hoping for the opportunity to more properly and fully explain to them Not just repentance, 
but the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm leading off first. That's why I'm striving for second and trying to make my way home. That's the goal. That's the passion. That's what others are all about. That's why we're all here. Now, in this language, it may sound weird to you, but he's probably referring to the principle in Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 17, where Ezekiel said the same thing. Actually, God spoke to Ezekiel, and he said, if you don't share the truth of my word, their blood is on you. So what did Ezekiel do? He shared the truth of God's word. If you share the truth of God's word with your children and your loved ones and your family members and your co-workers and anyone who will listen, your neighbors, and they reject it, that is not on you. If they receive it, it's not on you. But if they reject it, it's not on you. If you don't, that's on you. God may find someone else. I'm sure he can. I'm sure he will. It doesn't excuse you. Now, I'm not saying that tomorrow you start, you know, badgering people, beating people over the head with your study Bible, which is how you build up your biceps on the way to church. Seen some of those Bibles we give to the kids? I thought, maybe the Sunday school is trying to build up their arms a little bit because these, these Bibles are huge, but they'll grow into them. I'm not saying you take that big old Bible and hit them on the head and say, you need to know God. I am suggesting you, like Paul, pray and watch as God opens the door for you to share the truth. It can be a simple word. The other day, I I shared just one scripture with someone I'm ministering to. I see them a couple times a week, but you know, every time I'm there, I'm praying. I'm like, Lord, let me say something about you. And it's funny, we were talking, I was at the dojo, and we were talking about um, a number of things, and someone was saying something inappropriate. That happens, by the way. When you spend time with non-Christians or or unbelievers, you know what you'll find? They say things that are completely inappropriate. I don't know if you noticed. And the person was laughing and and thinking that it was okay to say that, and I just turned, and and it was in a very loving way. I said, hey, you know, there's a proverb in God's word that says that even a fool is wise when he keeps his mouth shut. <laughs> and it wasn't, it wasn't received negatively. In fact, the heads were bobbing. Yeah, that's, that's wisdom. That's truth. I'm hoping as I share God's word that those moments will open up bigger moments and greater opportunities for me to share my story, which I have. But more importantly, God's story in my life. All right. He could say this because he had boldly preached the word of God to them. They were empowered, these leaders, to continue preaching the gospel in Paul's absence. He didn't need to be there. He had revealed to them, as he said, the whole will of God, the whole counsel of God. It is possible to know the whole will of God in your life and for your life. It's actually not that complicated. You do need to study God's word to know it. But he also charged them to fulfill their calling as shepherds and overseers of the flock of God. What were they supposed to do? I'm just going to read verse 28 again. We're almost done this morning. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. In that encouragement, we learn a couple of things that are important. First, you need to keep watch over yourself. 
You need to keep watch over yourself. Don't let someone else be responsible for keeping watch over you. Now listen, we really support those who are in recovery and understand the importance of having a sponsor. We, imp- we really encourage discipleship and value the importance of having someone who's mentoring you and coaching you, but it is not their responsibility to watch over you. That is your responsibility, to watch over yourself. So that's the first thing. Second thing, watch over each other. You know, I remember we were touring a uh, historic village. I guess it was down in Monmouth County, around Wall. And there was a docent who was talking about the importance of the fire in the kitchen. And she said, you know, there was a saying that if you had to watch the fire and you also had to watch your husband, that if you watched one, the other would surely go out. You guys didn't get that, did you? (laughs) Watching other individuals is also a part of what we're called to do. Watching over others. But we have to start by watching over ourselves. Now, they were to keep watch over all of God's people. They were to care for them as shepherds, care for sheep. We know what that looks like. They did as well. They were to remember that the sheep belonged to God and not to them. They were bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Those sheep don't belong to you. You're an under-shepherd. You're called to watch over others, starting with yourself and then others, making sure that they don't go out and do things they shouldn't do. Making sure they don't go out of God's will. But you start by making sure you're in God's will. He also charged them to be on guard. And we have to be on guard against those who would try to destroy the flock of God. And there are many. Sadly, Our government is among those trying to destroy the flock of God now. Many government agencies, I think, when they sit down in those private rooms, at the top of their agenda say, how can we destroy the flock of God? It seems to me, based on their actions, that that's the goal. Even if they don't know it, that's the goal. And it's sad. But we need to know, we need to be on guard As Paul said, he revealed to them that men like savage wolves will try to destroy the church. That's a very graphic description, but it's accurate today. He also told them that some will attack the church from within. This is the saddest truth of all. That individuals will come into the church, and what will they do? He tells us two things. They'll distort the truth of God's word, and they'll draw away disciples after themselves. Distort the truth of God's word and draw away disciples after themselves. We have two enemies as the church of God today. We have an enemy without, and we have an enemy within. The enemy within is those that continue to pretend to be the flock of God, but actually their goal is to draw you away from God. And they do that by distorting the truth of God's word. They will tell you that God's word says things it doesn't say, and doesn't say things it says. That's distorting the truth of God's word. How do you protect the flock against people like that? Preach the word of God. Teach the word of God. I'm not up here to give you a little sermon with a nice little title that you go home, you know, with a matching calendar and bookmark. I am here this morning to preach God's word to you, to protect you from the savage wolves out there that will tell you something different than the truth. 
And I also don't want anyone to drag you off like a savage wolf will take a lamb behind a tree and destroy it. And that's why we're here this morning. He had reminded them and continued to remind them that he had warned them of this very thing for three whole years. Well, he then finally, and I like this, I think this is so important because at this point we can feel very responsible for others. And we should be. We're serving others. But look at verse 32 again. Now, after having said all these things, I commit you to God. And the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. You see, he knew that at the end of the day, he committed them to God. Assuring them that his word could build them up. Assuring them that his word would give them an inheritance of eternal life. That is salvation. And this was true for all those that were sanctified by his grace. Are you sanctified by his grace this morning? Because if you are and you're in God's word, you don't need me to protect you. Do you understand what I'm saying? God will protect you. See, really, my goal is to not, quote-unquote, shepherd you, but under-shepherd you. That is, bring you to God and let God shepherd you and protect you through the teaching of his word and the protection of his grace and his love and the power of the Holy Spirit. You don't need me. I'm not looking to build dependence upon me. We're looking to build dependence upon God. And that's why the vital role of a pastor is to teach the word of God and draw people to God. At some point, people should forget about us to the exclusion of anything other than God himself. Just make it about him and your ministry will be what God has called it to be. All right, let's wrap this thing up. Verses 33 through 35 tell us, Paul says of himself, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words that the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Listen, that, it'd be wonderful if every ministry leader actually live that way, wouldn't it? But that's what Paul models for us. Take the model of any Christian leader, and you could model them against Jesus, and you'd see this true, but just for, uh, just for a minute, think about what Paul just said. He had never desired to take any money or clothing from anyone else. He had provided for his own needs and the needs of his ministry team as what we call a tent maker. He was literally a tent maker. He worked, and he worked hard in order to provide for those who were unable to help themselves. It's a little bit different than just putting your hand out or passing a plate. He lived by Jesus' teachings, providing for others without receiving from them. That is a man of God. That is the man or the woman who lives that way who is serving God. Anything less should be called out as less. Then we learn that he knelt down and prayed with them. Look at verses 36 through 38. These are some of the sweetest moments in this account. He says, when he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him 
to the ship. These people cared about this man. Why do you think that was? Because he cared about them. You know, I've heard pastors complain that people leave their churches. And there are many reasons why people leave churches. And some of them are probably good reasons. Like, you're moving to California. It might be a tough commute every Sunday. But I personally think, and this is just my limited understanding, that the number one reason people leave churches is because they don't feel loved. Oh, you can talk about the fact that, well, the pastor's not pre-trib. Oh, the pastor's this. Oh, the... Or you can just say, maybe they didn't feel loved. Maybe they didn't feel cared about. They were incredibly emotional as they prayed together. And they were devastated that he revealed to them that they would never see him again. That's what troubled them the most. And as they all accompanied him to the ship, he and his team got ready to set sail for Jerusalem. He timed the whole thing so that while they were waiting for the ship to sail, he could have this time with them. They were important enough that he, he changed his travel plans just enough to be able to do this, but at the same time, he's still true to his calling to get to Jerusalem before Pentecost. He prioritized people over projects. He prioritized people over all else except the will of God. Brothers and sisters, as I ask the worship team to come up, this is not just a litmus test for me as a pastor or any of our pastors here or any church ministry that we're familiar with. It's much more than that. It's a template. It is a marker for us to follow as believers. We are called to live as Paul did. And I've laid out for you, as he's shared with these individuals, what that looked like, what that meant. So I ask you as we pray, are you living your life in this way? Are you living your life for Christ? Do you, as Paul said, consider your life worth nothing? If only you may finish the race and complete the task the Lord has given you to do. Testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Lord, Heavenly Father, this is a challenging message for me as well. But you have made it very clear, abundantly clear to us what ministry means and what we've been called to do as your children. Help us to keep watch over our own hearts and also to watch over others. Help us to live our lives for others. Mostly, we know that's in agreement with this, but to live our lives for you. Lord, we surrender our hearts to you, confessing that you are the Lord of all the heavens and the earth, that you truly loved us such that you came and died on the cross for our sins. You rose again on the third day. And that if we place our faith in that truth, the truth of the cross and the resurrection, that we can long for the truth of your coming again and be a part of your kingdom for all eternity by grace, by grace. Lord, we ask that you would work and continue to work in this church and in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.